Welcome to Westside Unscripted, the podcast where pastors loosen their ties, throw away their notes, and answer questions about all things theology and culture. I am Josh Bartels, the assistant to the pastors here at Westside, and I am joined, as always, by Pastor Peter Montoro, the preaching pastor of Westside Baptist Church. So welcome, Peter. And you've brought a couple books with you, as is your practice. Uh, Going to give us some recommendations and some reading. So what did you bring today? I brought two things. One, there's a book. Both of them we have in the bookstore. Uh, one is called Be Thou My Vision. Uh, and uh, let's see what's the subtitle here. A Liturgy for Daily Worship. And I've been using this the past couple days. I wanted to use it the whole, I wanted to use it starting in January, but there was some sort of production delay. So I had ordered it and it didn't come in, didn't come in, didn't come in. And finally it came in um, and we have it in the bookstore. And so what it has is for each day, there's 31 days. Um, and so it starts with a uh, call to worship, which is a scripture, um, appropriate scripture. And then it's got a prayer of adoration that's taken from the history of the church, a pretty wide variety of sources um, all throughout from the early church to the medieval period to uh, more contemporary figures from the, Refor- you know, from the Reformation and even more recently. And then it has a, a short scripture reading uh, about the, something about the law of God and then a prayer of confession and uh, then a assurance of pardon that comes from scripture and then a, a historic creed of the church. Uh, and then it has a, a praise, uh, a song of praise to God. And then you read something from a, a historic catechism. And then it has another prayer. And then it has a spot to do your scripture reading. It has a reading plan and not, you don't have to use their reading plan. I'm not. But then it has like the slot to do like your daily scripture reading. Uh, and then a prayer of intercession. Um, also taken, you know, some of the history of the church. And so it's really... Uh, kind of a, uh, just like an overview, like something similar to like a really rich, like historically rich, almost like a order of worship that in many ways, it's not dissimilar to the flow that we have in our worship services, which isn't, you know, isn't accidental because it's a very historic kind of really going back to the beginning of the church, that sort of flow of that sort of progression um, is really, really common, but it just sort of takes that and turns it into a key of something you can do in just a few minutes in your personal devotion to really sort of tune your heart to the realities of the gospel, praising God for who he is, confessing who we are, you know, thanking him for what he's done and uh, learning from his word and then, you know, asking him for what, he, what we need. And so it's not exactly the same with how we do our services, but it's very similar, but it's been really rich and, 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 and really an encouragement to me the past few days. So we have several copies in the bookstore and uh, it's pretty, what price do we have it at in the bookstore? Do you know? I don't remember on hand, offhand what it's it was. Not it's not super expensive. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's very reasonable. It's very beautifully produced. Because it's in the bookstore, it's definitely cheaper than you're going to get anywhere else. Yes. And yep. it's really, it comes with a nice slip cover and yeah. nice end covers and three bookmarks. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that you could be going through every month. And yes, it's yeah, gonna, exactly. It's going to hold up to that kind of yes. use. Yeah. It's got a nice sewn binding, and it's something I'm planning on doing it all year, planning on doing it you know, for the rest of the months of the year and then seeing after that. But yeah. it's really been encouragement to me. So Yeah, that's great. So you've got something else too. Yes, else I do. Um, our next book of the month, I mentioned this on Sunday, is called God Is, A Devotional Guide to the Attributes of God. So kind of going in a, a devotional theme here. Though I will say, if you're thinking of it as like a devotional, like kind of your typical devotional book, you probably are not expecting the right thing. So it is an applicational guide to the attributes of God. And it's devotional in the sense that it ought to inspire devotion. But it's pretty, theo- it's like, it's a guide to the attributes of God. So I would, you know, in sort of, you know, wrapping your mind around it, if you're thinking of like, you know, my five minute devotion book, like a lot of devotional books are, it's going to take a little more work than that. 
but it really does, he really works hard to both make it understandable to regular people, like it's not written to theologians, it's written to the people in the pew, um, and also make it applicational. And so each chapter he'll go through and he'll explain like, you know, what difference does this truth? So, you know, you've got um, some, some of the first chapters, God is triune, God is spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, independent, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, blessed, glorious, majestic, sovereign, love, good, patient, merciful, wise, holy, faithful, gracious, just, angry, and anthropomorphic, and a few other chapters I skipped over. Um, so you've got all these chapters, and they're all attributes of God, and then he'll show how this attribute is revealed by Jesus Christ. So that's kind of a distinctive of the book. And then he'll make an application for how could this show up in our lives? Um, and the chapters are real short, like, you know, um, you know, less than less than 10 pages. Some of them are, you know, four or five pages. So it's it's really, you know, sort of bite-offable chunks. It'll take some mental work. You'll have to work at it. But it's, you know, it's, uh, I've been looking for a long time for a book about the attributes of God that was thoroughly um, careful, you know, that was both something that you could give to someone who's not a theologian, who's just a regular church member, um, who wants to know more about God, but didn't, wasn't sloppy in the theological side. And a lot of more like popular type books are sloppy or have some significant errors in, in the doctrine of the Trinity, especially. Uh, and so it's very careful, but also he's trying to make it accessible. And so I really, really, uh, I think it's going to be a good look forward to discussing it. Um, yeah, so it's not the kind of thing that's going to be a quick, like two minute read for a morning devotion, like the be thou my vision might be at points, it's really going to be something you're going to have to sit down and pay attention to. And yeah, give, but like, it is small. Yeah, to. but it is small chunks. Yeah. So it's something you could, you you don't have to sit for an hour to okay, read, yeah. you know, so mm-hmm. you could sit for 20 minutes and read through the chapter cool. and it's broken into smaller sections. So you could sit for 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10, you know, like you could, you could work your way through it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, today's topic uh, definitely has uh, relevance, obviously to theology, but it's more in line with church practice. So the question is, what are the historically recognized sacraments in Christianity or what have been recognized as sacraments uh, in Christianity? And uh, how has that changed to influence what we believe today? I'm assuming getting at the idea that as Baptists, we kind of recognize two sacraments or ordinances being the Lord's Supper and baptism. Yet uh, at other times in church history, it wasn't just those two. There were multiple things that were added in and talked to, referred to as sacraments. Why is there that difference? What, what, happened between then and now that uh yeah got us to where well, we are. this is a this is a massive massive topic um so i'm not going to probably explain it all uh and and i i you know wouldn't recollect every particular detail like the year that this shifted but you know in terms of big picture you know you've got a a there's a lot of different language that gets used so the language of ordinance is something really draws and it really draws attention to the difference um, I don't have a problem with the language of sacrament or with the language of, you know, a lot of the historic language, but the, the language of ordinance really does draw attention, though, to what's distinctive about a Protestant view as opposed to, say, a Roman Catholic view. Um, and so when you go, and if you go early in the church, really, the, the word sacrament gets used in a lot of different ways. Um, and sort of the ordinances or all of this language gets used. The mysteries is another another key word. Um that gets used early on, and there's lots of different la- lots of different words that that are used, and lots of different things that get referred to under this category. Um, and so earlier on, you have some uh, writers that are talking about dozens and dozens of sacraments, and they're really when they're talking about a sacrament or whatever language they're using, they're really talking about anything visible 
that communicates grace through which God. When you say early on, what are we talking? Like, uh, I think the key transition probably comes around, I want to say around 1,100. I believe it was, you know, I'd, I'd have to double check this, but I think it's probably Aquinas who really hits on the seven. Um, so, before, so we're talking, this is pre-1000. Yeah, and this is around that. So it's, it's, it's running in my mind. It's like the high Middle Ages where okay. the sacramental theory is being developed. And so there would be people who would talk about many different you know, means of grace or, or means through which God might communicate grace. And so really in people, this language of sacrament, like sacramental reality has become very common, um, uh, kind of a trendy word to use more recently. And so really the question is like, do we want to call a sacrament everything, you know, because God can communicate, you know, I would want to affirm, you know, God communicates grace through creative reality, right? Uh, and so, you know, you could say something is sacramental in the sense that anything through which I receive God's grace or, you know, is a Thanksgiving dinner sacramental? Well, it depends on what we're talking about, right? Is it it's not something we do in church, but it's something through which I've received God's grace and his love through, you know, a meal with friends, you know, but that's not a sacrament of the church. And so that really becomes the question of like, what are we talking about? So there's this sort of broader sense of sacramentality where there's like God's grace communicated through creaturely, through creaturely means. Um, and there could be lots of things. And so you have some medieval writers who are enumerating dozens and dozens of things. Um, and then, you know, it's probably predictable that, you know, Catholicism would end with seven. Um, you know, just because if you're getting everything all organized, that's a wonderful number. And I'm, you know, I, that, that makes sense to me that you would, you would land on that number. Um, but the seven sacraments of Catholicism uh, are, if I can remember them. So you've got the, uh, you've got baptism, um, confirmation. You're going to look this up. So let's see if I can remember them. Yeah, you have baptism, you have confirmation, penance, marriage, ordination, last rites, um, and confession. Did I get them? Yeah, you mentioned, uh, is matrimony a part of that? Was yeah, that I said a, marriage. Okay, okay. Yeah, so, so yeah. marriage. So okay. you can't be a mar- you can't you can't get all seven. Nobody gets all seven. Well, if you were married and your wife died and then you became a priest, yeah. that'd be the only right, way right, to you actually, know to, to get all seven. Yeah. Um, and so that really you know those things are the means in the Roman Catholic system by which you re- sort of receive grace. The language of ordinance, though, is really drawing the question to what are the things that God has ordained to be done in the church. And so that really, this is a reformational thing that then you really get the, 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 what are the things that Christ ordained in his earthly ministry to be done in the church? So not all the things through which we might do and receive grace, because really, if you're, if you're leaning into that, then the list becomes limitless. Yeah. It's hard to actually put a cap on it. Yeah. It's hard to put a cap on it. Right. Um, And of course, you know, we would have profound differences about all of those things. But, you know, we would have most, we'd have, you know, analogs to most of those things in the church. So then we would debate on, you know, what did that mean in the year 1000? What does that mean today? What is the Catholic teaching? What's our teaching? But really the broader question is, you know, do we do in church, do we sort of develop and grow and blossom, you know, the things that we do in a church service um, over time, or do we really stick with what Christ ordained? And so if you're going to stick with the things that Christ ordained to be done, then you get, you get baptism, you get the Lord's Supper, and occasionally you'll have people taking foot washing. Um, I don't think foot washing is an ordinance. I don't, I, I don't think that was the intention. Like, I think it was a symbolic act. Um, 
you know, in a similar way to Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, but we don't have like a, you know, a breathing sacrament. So I, I don't see, I don't see the foot washing as being sacrament, you know, as being an ordinance. So if you, you know, get to the things that Christ ordained, then you really, you know, you get, um, you get baptism in the Lord's Supper. And, and that's what, what happened at the Reformation, that there's a, uh, a sense of, you know, what does scripture actually ordain that we do? And, and so then you have this language of means of grace, which I think is, is very, you know, that's sort of like more reformational language of these are the things that, you know, God can give his grace in any number of things, any number of ways, you know, a leaf falling from a tree. God can, God can inspire us by that. You know, God can work through anything, but there are certain places where God has promised to work um, and told us to do because he has promised to be present. Like God is omnipresent and God can manifest himself in lots of ways, but there are certain things he's told us to do. And it really comes down to the, you know, the proclamation of the word, which everything in our service is based around word and, you know, word and sacrament or word and ordinance, that these are the, you know, the visible, you know, the actions he's told us to do. Uh, and then everything else is, you know, we read the word, we pray the word, we sing the word. It's really word centered. Um, and, and then we do the things that Christ has ordained to be done in his church. And, and really baptism and and the Lord's Supper are the word made visible in a particular way. They're particular actions we've been told to do. Um, and so that sort of is that, you know, while, so, so we'd want to really limit the number of things we'd call the ordinances of Christ, you know, while affirming that, you know, Christ can be present in lots of places in lots of different ways. So we're not limiting, you know, we, we touched, you know, we touched on this, um, we talked about the, uh, the gifts of the spirit, you know, the work of the spirit, that I don't want to limit where the spirit may choose to show up but I do want to be clear about where we should look for the spirit to be working. You know, so if I want to, you know, see the word of God made visible, I don't go out and look at the leaves. You know, I come to church and I take part in the Lord's Supper because that's where God has promised to be present. Um, and that, you know, if, yeah, I think yeah. that makes sense. So, so then why is preaching or however you would describe the broader word wordiness of our worship uh, why is that not included in an or seen as an ordinance of the church? What what would be the difference there? The distinction between the God ordaining that we do baptism in the Lord's Supper and the ordin the ordination of yeah. I mean, I really preaching. wouldn't make a. I suspect that historically the reason that you have word and sacrament is because historically you had the seven sacraments. They kept two of them, got rid of the rest, and added, you know, now that there was no word in, in Catholicism before, but really made the word sort of, uh, you know, an emphasis of the sacramental character of the word, that God's grace is present as his word is proclaimed. And there's a sense um, that as, you know, preaching is particularly, you know, that Paul talks in, uh, in Corinthians, in his letters to the Corinthians, he talks about how as Christ is present in his, he's standing in the place of Christ, and, and, and Christ is speaking through, God is speaking through him as he's pleading with the Corinthians to be reconciled to God. Um, so there's this sense that there's a, a, you know, there's something more than just the imparting of information. And that's why I'm, you know, I think it's not enough to just sort of listen to podcasts. And even though I'm for podcasts, I'm recording one right now. Um, but there's a, there's something that happens when you're present and God's word is proclaimed, that God is present and God is speaking through the preacher, whatever his, you know, sufficiencies are, as long as God's truth is being proclaimed, there's something real that's taking place. So I guess if I were to go back to the drawing board, I probably would put the proclamation of the word in that category. <laughs> but historically, because of the way that that all developed and, you know, 
uh, flourished in unhelpful ways and that was trimmed down and corrected, um, the language has been word and sacrament since the time of the Reformation. Um, but I think I, I get the sense that a lot of people, if you push them, they would still talk about the word in the same category as the Lord's Supper. Um, you know, maybe the difference would be Lord's Supper and baptism are physical actions that we perform. Um, so there is something distinctive about them in that way. And, and the word is more something that we hear or that we would read or say. Um, but on the whole, broadly speaking, the, they are very similar in what they are accomplishing in the, oh, yeah. in the church. Yep. Yeah, right. exactly. Yep. Yeah. Do you think then that the, the word, because in the Reformation, you've got the move towards preaching being uh, kind of the center of worship mm-hmm. as opposed to, if I'm not mistaken, the sacrament, the Lord's Supper was kind of the center of the worship yeah. at that point. So you get a little bit of a, of a shift or at least a more emphasis on the word preached. Did that then shape how we came to understand the visibility of the word in the Lord's Supper? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you're drawing into a lot of different issues there, but really the problem, you know, the fundamental problem with the Roman Catholic Mass is that the Mass is viewed as a sacrifice, and it'll depend on who you're talking to, but at the time of the Reformation, this is definitely the case, that at that time, the Mass was viewed as a sacrifice that gained merit with God. That's why you do Masses, that's why you, you pay to have Masses said, said for you after you're dead, because the priest, and he lifts it up to God, like he turns from the congregation, he's lifting the host up to God. He's representing the sacrifice, of the one sacrifice of Christ. So there's a lot of, you know, sort of theological, you know, there's a lot of sort of technical language to make it sound less shocking than it actually should be. Um, but the reality is it's done, something that's being done as it's offered to Christ. And so the reformational change is it's something that God offers to us. Um, and so it's, it's a meal that Christ is serving to us. Uh, and so you have, you know, differing extents, the different, you know, there's multiple reformations and there's different extents to which they, they decenter that. But what they're really pushing against in their time is this idea that there's something meritorious. There's something we can do to earn favor with God by paying for a mass, by being present at a mass. And one of the interesting things is that, you know, late, late medieval Roman Catholicism, the people were not taking part in the supper, maybe once a year. Um... Uh, once or twice a year, they didn't get the cup. They only got the bread. Um, so this was one of the oh, wow. early reformational issues is giving the cup to the laity. So only the priest got the take of the cup. The laity just got the bread. So if you go back to like Jean Hus um, and the, the Hussite movement in Bohemia um, or John Wycliffe, some of the early reform movements in the 12, 1300s are really concerned about this. This is like the issue, uh, sort of before the reformers, before Luther, that they're really concerned the cup has been taken away from the laity. And so they're going and they're watching the mass, but they're not taking part in the Lord's Supper. And so sometimes you would get the idea that like um, the, the Lord's Supper was central to Catholicism, and then it became decentered by the Reformation. But actually, the reformers were typically pushing for a much more frequent observance. Uh, and many of them uh, wanted weekly observance, but the you know city councils were unwilling to you know shell out the money. Um, I mean, food costs, relative food costs, have changed dramatically. Um, so people were unwilling to shell out the money, or for whatever reason, they you know could only get say quarterly observance. But if you had been taking it once a year, now you're taking it four times a year, or now you're taking it monthly. That's more. Um, I mean, historically, the early church pattern is that they're taking it every week. 
And I mean, that would be my my personal preference would certainly be that as well, um, that there's, uh, you know, there's there's strong historical grounds in both in the New Testament and in the early church that the Lord's Supper being partaken of every week. But what you see in Roman Catholicism is that they're moving to a much less frequent observance. Now, today, you have, you know, if you're a faithful Catholic, you're partake, you're actually partaking of the Mass in both kinds um, very frequently. So we could we could have the feeling that this is a Catholic thing to do, but actually it's the other way around. It's something they learned from the Reformers, um, and, and it was something that, like— you know, someone like Calvin really wanted to see take place. Um, and so, so the emphasis then on the word that resulted in an emphasis on the receive, receiving grace as opposed to mm. offering up the sacrifice didn't downplay and sidestep the Lord's Supper to be a lesser thing in the church. It was like ele- everything was elevated along with the word, with the preaching of the word. Yeah. So that so that the, the the focus on the word actually brought more focus and attention to the way that the word is present in the supper, right. and therefore yeah. Now architecturally, important. though, there is a decentering because the, the the key idea is they they didn't want it to look like there was an altar because that's the thing the, re, the the sacrifice of the mass. So a lot of times in like especially Puritan church buildings, they'll they'll get rid of and this was a big deal in the Anglican Reformation. They'll get rid of the altar and they'll replace it with a table, and that the the pulpit will be centered so that people can hear the word of God. So there, there is that emphasis, but it's not, you know, in, in, in the English Reformation, they're still taking part of the Lord's Supper, you know, weekly, and they, they maintain a weekly communion, um, and in the Lutheran Reformation as well. And, uh, you know, Calvin wanted to have <laughs> very regular, if not weekly communion, but, you know, the Genevan city council just wouldn't let him. So there still was, you know, so there is a, a sort of decentering, but it's not a decentering of the word made visible. Uh, it's a decentering of the altar, except for except for Zwingli. Zwingli very much just doesn't, you know. You get someone quipped, you get the sense with Zwingli that wherever Christ is present on the world, the one place you can be certain he will not show up is is in in the bread and in, in the wine of the supper. Um, and for various historical reasons, Zwingli becomes a significant influence on some in the English speaking world, um, and so you get that. But that's actually very atypical. Um, of uh, Zwingli was influential on some Presbyterianism, some forms of Presbyterianism, and so that you know sort of has a, a certain degree of influence. But that's actually not typical of the Reformations as a whole. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. There's a lot. There's the, a lot. The and there's a lot that I don't know. It's something I would <laughs> yeah. like to know a lot more about. The, the, the Reformation period is a period of. Uh, of mystery and it's kind of like a big labyrinth trying to oh, yeah. cross the uh, different lines of thought and doctrine and ideas. And so I'm sure that our investigation into other theological and cultural issues will take us back through the Reformation once again at some point. I did future. a I did a pretty deep dive on the Reformations um, when I was in my University of London degree. So it was like my church history module was Reformation. So I didn't, <laughs> it's, it's a period that I know not as much as I ought to know about it, but more than I do about some others. And so, yeah, that's so interesting. It's, uh, there's just, it's like, it's a labyrinth. It's very interesting. Well, I'm sure we'll be back. So if you we have other back. questions, other, uh, mysteries that you want untangled about the, about the uh, hopefully we won't leave you more confused than when you started yeah we'll, we'll do our best i say we i mean pastor peter well you you but, ask good you you got to ask the good questions when i've when i've tangled the yarn you've got to point out and yep, say hey yeah. that's tangled over there are you gonna sort it out for us or what you're gonna exactly. do so we'll do more sorting out uh in the future but for now this has been another episode of west side unscripted so thank you so much for listening in we really appreciate uh you tuning into this uh, podcast 
And so if you have questions that you would like answered on the show, then please email me at josh at Bible Direction for Life, and we will get those queued up for Pastor Peter. Of course, you can always catch me with those questions at church uh, or just send me a, a message. So thanks again for listening, and we hope you join us again next week for more talk about theology and culture on Westside Unscripted. Unscripted.